0: Well, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller.
1: And I'm Brad Carlson.
0: And today, Brad, uh, we've got back with us Anna Cates, who's a soil health specialist with the University of Minnesota. I think the last time, or the first time actually, we had her on was about a year ago in March. Um, We were at a meeting, I believe, up in Dakota County and uh, acquired the, the regional office, one of the meeting rooms there, to get together and kind of do a podcast, introduce Anna to, because at that time I think you were still relatively new and it was the first time on the podcast and so we kind of did a little bit of an introduction and uh, and such. Uh, but today, Anna, um, well first we should say welcome.
2: Thanks a lot. Yeah, I think you're about right. One of our last few meetings of the winter of 2020, we did that. I I was
1: gonna say I think that was uh, I think that one we recorded just maybe the week before everything shut down and we uh, dropped that podcast after we were kind of uh, uh, locked up and then we were wondering what the podcast schedule would look like after that.
0: (laughs) And we we managed to kind of make our way through and figure out how to do this without uh, without being in person. And I'm certain certainly we're going to see some of those things kind of change here as we move forward and. We'll be having some more in-person events and the opportunity to get out and, and see some of the research projects and things like that, and hopefully get in person again so that we can sit across from one another in a, in a real physical sense and, and do one of these podcasts. So looking forward to that day. Um, but uh, today, uh, you know, Anna's specialty is, is soil health. And uh, and we were kind of talking about uh, covering something that's integral to soil health and kind of a component of soil, uh, very complex, uh, that being organic matter. And uh, and we were going to take a little time to discuss uh, some issues around organic matter and uh, some things that have been observed most recently, right, Brad?
1: Yeah, well, organic matter is uh, probably one of the, the biggies as far as soil health is concerned. If you look at what kind of indices uh, we use for measuring soil health. Uh, percent organic matter is one of those. Uh, uh, myself, as a soil scientist, uh, my background as far as uh, understanding what, what the situation is in southern Minnesota is uh, when we had the native prairie and, uh, that covered a large part of the state, we were uh, dealing with uh, frequently uh, 10 to 12 percent soil organic matter in a lot of cases. Uh, of course, uh, that went down rapidly as the prairies were turned over. Um, it's it's worth noting that the uh, the whole Bonanza Farm uh, situation back in the kind of late uh, 1800s uh, was largely built on uh, wheat production uh, coming from the uh, nitrogen being supplied by those prairie soils that were turned over and kind of a combination of the depletion of that nitrogen source without the ability to supplement it as well as uh, then uh, what took a few years to bring in uh, weeds and, and uh, insect pests really kind of crashed the whole Bonanza farm uh, thing. But uh, uh, you know, where we're sitting these days, uh, a lot of our prairie soils in Southern Minnesota are more in the range of three uh, to 5% uh, organic matter uh, some of the wet spots uh, tend to be higher. Uh, we're going to get into that uh, in a little bit. Um, and then of course, uh, we know that because organic matter decomposes uh, with, with temperature and with uh, soil moisture, the um, percentage of organic matter that we would find in soils decreases as we go south. And I know particularly we get listeners from out of state You know, the further south you get, uh, the lower percentage of organic matter we tend to find in in our soils.
2: Yeah, and and soil organic matter is seen as integral to soil health because it kind of has that biological aspect. Like we've been talking about, you know, it's literally the living and dead organisms of the soil kind of compiled into that percent number you get. There's a lot of different critters wrapped up in that 3 to 5 percent. So you, think, you can think about the function that those organisms are providing. But then the other piece of organic matter that it provides is structure. You need organic matter to glue your soil aggregates together and give you good soil structure. And what Brad is saying is totally true, that we've seen a crash in soil organic matter, basically because annual crops aren't providing the same kind of organic matter inputs that a year-round perennial prairie wood with grazing and burning and a whole different whole different ecosystem so that's why we have less organic matter now nevertheless even though we're not quite in bonanza farming where we can just plant weed and it'll get enough nitrogen from the decomposing prairie roots Even a corn crop in the Midwest that gets a ton of fertilizer is still getting half of its nitrogen needs from nitrogen in the soil organic matter. Studies that use nitrogen tracers have shown that a lot of times. It varies some, but half is a good ballpark.
1: And it's kind of pertinent. We've been talking uh, one of the the hot topics uh, that we've covered. Uh, We've talked about, Ryan, and it's been hit in the nutrient management podcasts as well as some of the stuff that came out from the nutrient management blogs uh is th- that there seems to have been a higher uh, nitrogen demand the last couple years the uh, lot of the data showed and it tended to be very site specific but jeff vetch uh, particularly had some trials in southeastern minnesota and pretty well isolated the sites that needed Uh, large amounts of nitrogen, and when I say large, I mean what I guess significantly higher than what the MRTN calculator would tell us should be necessary for corn following soybeans, and when you look at the nitrogen response curve of the sites that needed those large amounts, what you find is the the yield at zero N rate is way lower than in other places. And so what that indicates to us is really what that impact is of the soil's ability to supply uh, nitrogen. And, and uh, obviously that's variable because sites, uh, there's, there's a big difference in what we get for a corn yield with zero N rate uh, from one site to the next.
2: That's exactly right. That's how you can tell how much your soil is supplying for nitrogen.
0: And, and sometimes if, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, you get these non-responsive sites, uh, which, uh, you know, aren't responding to nitrogen. A lot of that, well, all of it's got to be coming from, you know, mineralization of that organic matter, which is going to be highly dependent upon temperature and, and and soil moisture and some of those things. And it seems so strange that you can see such a wide variety or, or, or response, I guess, from, from zero needing a lot of nitrogen or, you know, you know what I'm getting at yeah. from a pr- perspective. Yeah, sure.
2: I mean, every farmer knows that every site year as we call it in research is different, right? And I think what you're talking about is that, um, you know, some years I think the timing lines up better than others. You know, uh, the corn nitrogen needs, that's a pretty well-known curve, But it doesn't necessarily line up when you have perfect conditions for microbes to pull nitrogen out of the organic matter and convert it into the inorganic form that the corn can take up. But if you get lucky one year and you hit that curve for corn just right with the timing for the microbial kind of happy active place then you'll get a lot more nitrogen from your soil that year so that's what's happening in a good year and in a bad year i bet your timing is just wrong the microbes are still there these wet years we've had are not great for providing uh, nitrogen from that organic matter pool either because they tend to be stuck in these saturated conditions and not working as fast
1: well, Ryan, what you're referring to is what we'd call a non-responsive site, uh, which uh, I mean means quite literally the yield you get out applying no nitrogen is the same as if you apply what you would consider a full rate of nitrogen. Uh, those sites have not been predictable. Obviously, if we could figure out where and when that's going to be, a lot of folks can save a whole lot of money on fertilizer purchases. But the one area we do tend to see, or the thing we tend to see with those non-responsive sites, Anna and I, I'm sure you're, you're up on this, is there tends to be a longer term manure history in a lot of those places. So for instance, Wisconsin tends to have a lot more of those where the dairy industry is more prevalent. Um, but the, the thing I guess that's the mystery is that we look at soil organic matter on those sites, it doesn't necessarily look different than the other sites. And so clearly there's there's a difference in what exactly is, is making up that organic matter and therefore how it's functioning during the, the season.
2: Yeah, that gets into our efforts in the soil health world to talk about different types of organic matter, which pools are microbially available and um, One pool that's been suggested, some work out east has shown that um, as the 24-hour carbon mineralization number goes up, your nitrogen needs go down, and that's a test you do by taking your bulk soil and putting it under ideal conditions and seeing how much carbon the microbes uh, blow off into CO2. And since they're mineralizing nitrogen alongside that CO2, it makes sense that that would also correlate to how much nitrogen they're going to provide over the season. So it essentially is kind of a fitness test for your microbes, like you used to have to run the mile and jog around those cones and stuff. And you say, okay, these microbes are more fit, so we think they're going to provide more nitrogen over the course of the season.
0: Well, and then Brad, another thing then complicating this is outside of this organic matter and transitioning between pools and and, uh, mineralizing to provide some of that nitrogen, You've got this other part of the nitrogen cycle that, uh, you know, in an excessively wet year, you could be seeing some potential for losses either via leaching or denitrification into the, into the atmosphere, right?
1: Right, and, and that, that's what complicates this significantly. Anna talked about the sweet spot of when we mineralize nitrogen. Uh, and when the, the plant needs it. But there's also then, a I guess if you will, a sour spot
2: <laughs> relative
1: to when we get precip, what the soil conditions are, and uh, how that impacts the overall nitrogen balance in the soil between uh, what's being supplied uh, by, by mineralization, as well as uh, what you've put in for, for fertilizer inputs. One of the things that we've been looking at, particularly this last couple of years, we mentioned these some of these sites that have much higher nitrogen demand or nitrogen response. Um, we kind of I don't want to say stumbled into it serendipitously, yet it sort of is the case. Uh, Dan Kaiser and I are currently working on a project that was intended to sort of recalibrate our pre-plant soil nitrate test. And what we're kind of discovering now in the last couple of years is background levels of soil nitrate are really low. And we don't normally talk about carryover or crediting nitrogen, but we're, we're also feeling like, well, Normally, there is some background level of nitrogen in the soil, and if it's not there, uh, we probably are going to need to look at maybe having some different recommendations under those circumstances.
2: Yeah, it's like everywhere has been converted to a coarse textured soil that's not holding on to anything like that or just a different scene.
1: yeah, and there's interplay also though with how long fall is. You know what the because we've it's been significantly wetter in the fall the last few years. And typically speaking in Minnesota, it's it's generally quite dry in the fall, and so mineralized nitrogen from the fall tends to stick around in a lot of cases. That looks like it's it's not necessarily the case, and and so I guess kind of coming back around uh, you know to what we were talking about earlier and you know one of the sites where we've seen this higher nitrogen demand is at the Southern Research and Outreach Center at Wasika yet where the the plots are tends to be towards 6% soil organic matter yet we're seeing the need to uh, supply higher uh, nitrogen fertilizer and so that that sort of flies in the face of What some people are purporting as one of the major benefits of soil health, which is, uh, well, we can reduce fertilizer input. So could you explain a little bit about what's going on in that circumstance? we got high organic matter, yet higher nitrogen demand anyway.
2: Yeah, I think it comes down to the timing issue we were talking about earlier. You can have all that organic matter there, but if the microbes aren't processing it at the right time for your crop, it's not doing anything for your crop. If they're, or if they're uh, mineralizing it in the fall and then it's leached out by some big rains, it's not doing anything for your crop. It's gone. So you can have a lot of nitrogen supply that is just supplied to, to no plants at all. The thing about uh, just correlating higher organic matter with needing less nitrogen on your crop is that it just totally neglects the whole climate piece. And so uh, our organic matters, as you said, Brad, are enviable for a lot of the country. And so we have a ton of organic matter, but that doesn't mean it's definitely going to translate into high nitrogen supply to your crop. It's... um, It's just like a lot of decisions with farming. If you could predict the weather, you'd be a millionaire. But since we can't predict the weather, we still have to apply some fertilizer as a backup. Yeah, people do tell these stories about essentially getting an active microbial community that's better able to take advantage of uh, an organic matter pool or changing the pools of organic matter so that more of it is microbially available. But the numbers don't bear that out across the board. There's not a, a, an easy solution to, as they say, boost your biology or uh, get your nitrogen cycling kind of at the right time for your crop. It's, there's still a lot of climate pieces.
1: Well, and then, you know, additionally, we talked about the fact that, that Fabian Fernandez has been doing a nitrogen rate trials, <clears throat> excuse me, up in Crookston. Uh, which is you know, 300 miles from the research and outreach center in Wasika, uh, in an area that we do not have a long history of growing corn. And so for that reason, we've not had a lot of data on nitrogen response uh, to corn and, and recommended what our recommendations should be and so forth. And in that area, we're actually finding a large percentage of the time we don't need to apply any nitrogen to corn following soybeans and 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 i guess i'm going to be careful in saying that i guess what i really mean is we're not getting response to applied fertilizer and so uh you get similar soil organic matters uh, but the sites are 300 miles apart
2: yeah obviously you're going to have really different conditions and different soil uh, texture too right um so you're just going to have a different environment for microbes to be supplying that nitrogen over time. Be interesting to look at some of these. I, I think it's totally worth continuing to explore these soil organic matter pools that might indicate how much nitrogen microbes can mineralize. I just want to caution anybody who's using existing tests to make plans for nitrogen applications. We don't have good relationships at this point. I'm still looking because it's an interesting question and because it's a really relevant economic question, but we're not there yet.
1: Well, and we were talking uh, before we started recording about some of the uh, interactions between organic matter what kind of organic matter is out there and drainage and uh, you were mentioning that you're uh, working with Lindsay Pease up at uh, Crookston on, on uh, trying to document what's going to be happening up there with the new research plots.
2: Right so drainage is rapidly expanding in northwest Minnesota and other parts of the state too I think um, And that presents a really unique scenario for microbes. So under saturated conditions, you have a lot of organic matter that just doesn't get decomposed because uh, it's too wet for microbes to work with it. You know, Microbes are like us. They need oxygen. And so they're waiting for those moments where they get some air in the profile to really get working on nitrogen mineralization. But if you got um, uh, poorly drained soils, that happens less often. So the organic matter sticks around for longer. And so then when you drain those soils, you get some oxygen in there, there's suddenly a lot of organic matter that was perfectly microbially accessible in terms of what kind it is and, um, you know, it's it's good food for them. And so they're going to rapidly release a lot of carbon and nitrogen carbon in the form of carbon dioxide and inorganic nitrogen. And... We're kind of trying to track how fast does that happen over these first couple of years since she installed drainage in 2019, and is it a relevant amount of nitrogen for somebody who's planting corner wheat that next year or beets up there as well? Um, Is that something that they need to take into account in those first couple of years of planting crops on newly drained land? And we don't have uh, all the data analyzed yet, but we have a couple grad students working on that. And uh, there is some evidence, at least, that as we'd expect, the organic matter is going down. What's kind of interesting is that it's going down deeper in the profile, which makes sense if you think about the water table essentially being higher in uh, undrained plot. And then when you drain it, the water table goes down, and so that organic matter that's lower in the profile is suddenly oxygenated more than it was. So that's actually where we're seeing differences so far is at depth.
0: So something I'm kind of curious about, uh, and and maybe we don't have this information, but in southern Minnesota where we got a longer-term history of artificial subsurface drainage on those prairie soils that Brad was talking about, uh, and we've kind of gotten into this rotation that's been more consistent over a number of years, as far as the organic matter pool and and in general, I guess, are we kind of in an equilibrium or are we, is the trajectory downward or flat, you know, where are we at in terms of where are things headed into the future with with this longer term, you know, rotation that we're in with, with artificial uh, drainage?
1: And I'll put a little addition to Ryan's question, Anna. Um, one of the objectives of a lot of people focusing on soil health farmers who are focusing on soil health in their fields is building soil organic matter so given what he uh, he just asked about you know what what should uh, farmers be thinking about realistically as far as the uh, organic matter pool in their soils and and where it's headed and what their management should be
2: so that is an excellent question that's a pool or an area of active research for people who think about soil carbon and agricultural systems. Um, The experiment I kind of cut my teeth on in southern Wisconsin is a now 30-year cropping systems trial where they have uh, grain-based systems, systems with alfalfa because it's Wisconsin, and and a pasture-based system. And they found that all of those systems were losing carbon over the first 20 years of the experiment from 1989 to 2009. And we just got the uh, 2019 sample, so we'll see if that trend holds for 30 years. And they looked all the way down in the profile. So if you look right at the surface, things are kind of holding steady in the pasture and the forage-based rotations, but anything that's just got corn-soybean or corn-soy-wheat, those are losing carbon slowly over this decadal time scale. And that's really important for farmers thinking about, you know, like you said, Brad, what their expectations should be with soil health and then coming in now is this question of what the expectations of a carbon market should be. Should you get rewarded just for holding on to carbon instead of losing it? If we're in this trajectory of going down that that data suggests we are, then, um, then yeah, you should be rewarded just for staying stable. And that shouldn't be a high expectation of gaining organic matter. There's some research kind of globally in the organic matter world that suggests that it's harder to gain organic matter on a high organic matter soil than on a low one. Um, There's essentially just less room to grow. It's like the, the, the plateau in terms of how fast you can make increases. So an annual cropping system, I would say is probably either kind of stable or slightly declining in carbon, maybe depending on that history of manure as well, because that can stick around for a while and kind of support things.
0: So two things kind of come to mind there. One, you know, what's, what are the implications as we're in the Northern latitudes? I mean, a lot of that kind of dictates the soils we've had and and we've been able to to you know utilize for farming based on just the natural history of the of the world right but these these northern latitudes where we kind of shut down soil activity for several months typically per per year I mean is that is that a really big component in helping to sort of store things and kind of by putting everything on pause every year for several months. I mean, is that is that an important part of this too?
2: Yeah, it really is. There's some cool data showing carbon inputs and outputs from the system. If you can imagine, the inputs essentially are the plant photosynthesizing carbon. The outputs are the microbes respiring carbon dioxide and if you look at that over the course of a year, even in a pasture system, uh, the inputs, the microbes, uh, or I'm sorry, the inputs of plants photosynthesizing faster than microbes are respiring. The inputs are only ahead for a short window every year, a couple of months. And the rest of the year, you know, like right now, for example, microbes are respiring faster than plants are putting carbon in. And so you actually just have a short window every year where you could potentially add organic matter, add carbon to your soil. And that's going to vary from year to year, like everything else we've been talking about. But in the cold climates, the microbes warm up slower. So you have less of the year where they're working away at things. And that's a big reason for the, you know, big picture landscape scale differences in organic matter, say, across North America.
1: You know, one of the things I was just thinking about uh, from, from a couple of minutes ago, uh, and it's kind of relative to my experience with the drainage plots at Wasika. Uh, but then also kind of getting coming crossing over to that experience in Crookston right now with uh, seeing not a lot of uh, response to fertilizer nitrogen on the drainage plots at Wasika for for decades, they had a treatment that they they uh, kept as bare soil they Uh, Initially, they were rototilling it, uh, and then later as glyphosate came on the scene, they just simply went out and they were killing the the weeds and keeping it bare. Uh, So we were not seeing any kind of a nitrogen demand from a growing plant out there. It was static. And typically speaking, those plots, uh, long-term average, were losing about 20 pounds of nitrogen Per, on a per acre basis when you did the calculations and that was coming just simply you know from a mineralized pool uh, but in the same treatments the same plots I should say uh, where there's nitrogen rates uh, applied and there was corn grown we were seeing uh, you know a zero nitrogen rate corn crop of maybe 120 bushels an acre or so and of course, you can't grow 120 bushels of corn on 20 pounds of nitrogen, and so it sort of begs the question: if the soil is able to supply enough nitrogen to grow 120 bushels of corn without adding fertilizer, yet when the corn's not there, it's only got 20. What's going on? Are there triggers that are actually, uh, you know, leading to you know the microbes? Mineralizing more nitrogen—is there such a thing as a as a demand uh, situation that kicks in, or or what 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 do we know about those dynamics?
2: That is a really cool illustration, Brad, and really interesting. Um, one of the soil health principles is to keep living roots in the ground, and that's because microbes live on roots. Roots shoot out carbon for microbes to eat. Microbes take that carbon and process it, and they, and they uh, mine the soil for nitrogen, essentially, for that crop. It's, um, you know, it's a lot of carbon that roots are pushing out. I can't remember the exact percentage of how much of their biomass, but say a third or something like that. So they're really invested in trying to keep the microbes alive and busy and happy compared to in that bare soil where there's nothing to really, uh, there's no new stuff to interest the microbes. They're not going to be as active. I bet if you used one of those tests like that 24 hour burst test, you would see lower values in a bare soil that hadn't seen roots in a lot of years. so that's that's a really cool illustration though of the fact that you kind of need plants in some ways to juice the system. It's not uh, the soil can't do it without the plants. it's It's a totally different thing because the plants are there.
0: So I'm kind of wondering is is there work being done on you know' you're, you're seeing that I'll call it increased biology or increased microorganisms are important is there any information or anything new with a shift in biology like if i boost the activity in the soil is there a profile that's more beneficial than another so to say or is mm-hmm. that kind of too far out to talk uh
2: about? people are definitely trying to do that and there's some companies that will tell you they've got the right microbe for you uh, that it'll do exactly what you want it to, especially in terms of nitrogen supply, because that's such a uh, an issue that everybody needs to address, right? Everybody needs to figure out how to get nitrogen to their crop. But... Getting nitrogen mineralized from soil organic matter is not a very unique function for microbes. It's not like rhizobia, where it's this real specific type of microbe that does this in conjunction with real specific plants, and only they can do it. Nitrogen mineralization from soil organic matter happens in just, you know, tons and tons and tons of microbial and fungi species. So it's not something that you need a particular organism to do. But we just don't know what most of the microbes do in the soil. You know, there's a news story I caught recently that they found a, a new microbe um, in the, uh, the Mars uh, space station or what have you where they were like oh my gosh we've never characterized this microbe before and we found it in this you know space environment but there's millions of microbes we haven't characterized in my yard that we could find anytime we were able to put the energy into it and if we knew what every one of them did we might be able to create the perfect community but we're a long way from that I, it's a tiny portion of this microbes in the soil that we could say exactly what they do and who they are.
0: And so along those lines, you know, it's something I've always been kind of skeptical about is, is if I amend a soil and let's just talk about it in a farm sense on an acre basis, if, if I go out and add a few pounds per acre or even a hundred pounds per acre, you know, what, you know, it's a small fraction of what's actually out yeah. there and, and how much you can actually shift something.
2: Yeah, you know, you might have some super competitive bugs in your jug, but it's not likely to make a big dent in what the microbial community looks like as a whole. You. Uh it's super complex we don't understand very much about how they're all interacting and then there's organisms on top of that the little invertebrates and stuff that are essentially the predators right you know we we get a lot from the microbes as if you will like the rabbits and the deer of the ecosystem and we don't know that much about the wolves either and they're the you know the big keystone species maybe um but we don't know that much about what they give us either
1: that, that, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting facet in this. So Anna as we're kind of getting uh, towards towards the end here, I, I've got kind of a, a large overarching question that maybe is just too large. I guess you'll you'll need to decide. But I've had uh, individuals tell me in the past that if you get your soil health all in order, eventually you won't need to add fertilizer inputs. Uh, is that a realistic statement? Uh, and if not, uh, what 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 realistically should be a long-term goal for farmers relative to their soil health, and then kind of the the follow-up to that would just simply be what should be a realistic short-term goal.
2: That is a good question. Um, well, for one thing, I assume they're just talking about synthetic fertilizer. <clears throat> But as we've been talking about, if you're growing corn or something like that, they need to get the nitrogen from somewhere. So maybe you're applying that as compost or manure or some other form of nitrogen, or you're growing a cover crop or alfalfa that's going to supply a lot of the nitrogen for the next year's corn. Those are perfectly reasonable farming systems to aim for. If you want to reduce your reliance on synthetic inputs, that's a philosophical choice, but to think about <clears throat> how much nitrogen your crop needs to yield at a certain level, you got to get that from somewhere. And it's unlikely the way the soil works that you're going to get the levels that a modern corn hybrid needs to yield at a, you know, competitive rate. So, if you like if you're okay with lower yields or if you're okay with kind of really pursuing all these different systems, then you could probably reduce your synthetic fertilizer input drastically, right? That's the whole idea of organic farming. Organic farmers still spend a ton of time working on their fertility. They're always thinking about where that's going to come from. They're just not applying urea. So it's not a... You don't get to drop out of the system. You just get to participate in a different way, maybe, if you're going to move in that direction. And a lot of times you're looking at crops that, um, that don't need as much nitrogen in particular because it's unlikely the soil is going to supply, like I said, modern corn hybrid nitrogen needs. Okay, short-term and long-term goals, that was the other part of the question. Yeah, well, so, so <laughs> what,
1: what, should, what should a farmer be thinking about, uh, you know, what do I do this year and is it going to make a difference next year or when will I start seeing a difference uh, versus uh, what I hope this is going to be like 30 years from now?
2: Sure. I do think that fertility can maybe be seen as part of the long term goal as uh, the uh, whole soil system kind of changes and is maybe developing the capacity to supply more nitrogen from your organic matter. One of the things I think can be seen as more of a short term goal is thinking about soil structure and function in relation to infiltration and water holding capacity. Those are so important for annual farm logistics and decision making that I think that if you are thinking about protecting your soil structure, which is going to require organic matter as the backbone of it, but if you're thinking about protecting your soil structure, you might see differences right away in terms of how it behaves in rain or droughty times. And that's something I'm trying to pursue with with more research in southern Wisconsin or southern Minnesota that we've talked about, Brad, where we're trying to figure out whether the um, soil structure on farms that have been doing no till and cover crops for a long time is actually responding differently to a big rain. You know, how is that aggregate stability different? How is the soil moisture and the profile changing after a big rain if you've been in these systems for a decade or that kind of thing?
0: Kind of that resiliency comp- component exactly, and, exactly.
2: Uh, that's the hot word we're going for some resiliency
1: well one area that i i like to stress when we're talking about nitrogen and nitrogen efficiency is uh, it's not just simply a factor of whether there's the nitrogen is present in the soil profile uh, in an adequate quantity but also you have to look on the crop side and whether or not the crop actually finds that nitrogen, and so root exploration of the soil profile uh, is very, uh, very important aspect with all this, and that gets right back to the whole soil structure issue, which goes right straight uh, into the the dead center of the whole soil health concept. And you know, one of the areas that I've, I've a uh, a uh, 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 um, Example that I've used through the years, and just about every farmer will nod their head and and they understand this completely. Uh, that the the day we're recording this, it's uh, pouring rain outside uh, right now where where I'm at. We've probably had an inch and a half of rain in the last uh, uh, probably thirty hours or so. Um, and if we all know that if you went out to a typical farm field and tried to dig a hole, it would just be a big giant mess. But most farmers and rural residents have the experience of going out and digging a hole in the woods or on a fence line or something like that. After a rainfall event, like for instance, you get some trees and you're waiting because you're too busy to plant them, and now it's rainy day, you're gonna go out and plant those, but it's been raining. Well lo and behold, where you want to plant the tree, it's just fine. you know, most farmers recognize that a fence line or a woods, Uh, they can get two inches of rain and they can still do something with that soil. It's still loose and and friable versus what it's like in the field. And so that's kind of the, you know, one of the ultimate goals maybe we'd like to get to in our farm fields at some point in time.
2: Yeah, I agree. It would make such a big difference, like I said, just in terms of the the everyday work of running your farm if you had more access um, on these really variable seasons in the spring and the fall when you need to get in the field but it might rain or it might not you know if you have good infiltration to let you out there faster that's really huge I was going to say about roots too you reminded me I just uh, saw uh, Matt Liebman talk yesterday he has some great data showing that in longer rotations the corn roots are able to explore deeper in the profile you're absolutely right that the structure doesn't just benefit the microbes and the water but it also benefits your crop plant
0: Well, very interesting discussion this morning. Anything else you guys want to talk about? Well, not hearing anything. I just uh, want to thank Anna for being on, and I want to thank everyone out there for listening. Another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast.